says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Because, But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who had said, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And, Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship In the word of God, we pray that you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive that which your spirit would say to us through which the word of God in its recorded form has been, Lord, given to us in this very passage. Lord, every intent and purpose behind your giving to us this portion of your word, we ask your spirit would speak to us. Lord, we ask that you would minister to our hearts that portion which we need that we may hear from you this morning. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's often been said that change is not easy. However, change certainly is sometimes necessary. And I think there's great truth to that. I don't think change in any way is ever easy to accept or embrace, but it's obvious that change is sometimes necessary. In fact, it doesn't take long to realize both in life as well as as the work of God unfolds that periodic change is unavoidable. 
It's inevitable. It's part of the process of life. As we journey through life, God is wired in nature itself, change of seasons. Uh, God has wired, it seems, into just life existence, that life kind of goes through stages and seasons and change continuously comes. Uh, And therefore, if we want to stay in step with what God is doing in our own lives, in the work of God, things that are unfolding, it's necessary to humbly embrace change. And that's really what we see happening in our text this morning. There's a process here of coming to accept change among the church. And it was difficult, but it was something they ultimately accepted. Now, remember, as we've been looking at together in our last few weeks, Jews and Gentiles, and again, Gentiles being non-Jewish people, any other nationality other than Jews, Jews and Gentiles both alike had no dealings with one another. They helped deep animosity in their hearts towards one another. And because of that, socially, they didn't really interact any more than was absolutely necessary. In fact, they actually almost sought to keep from interacting with each other. But yet in the prior chapter, as we looked at chapter 10 together, we saw that the Lord overruled some deeply held social barriers and customs uh, and and really kind of just overruled in those things which caused a long-seated rooted division between Jews and Gentiles and it's almost as if Jesus said I know there's division among you I know there's prejudice and segregation amongst you as people groups but to me that doesn't really matter and he just overruled all that And he showed his love and his grace despite those things. And that change was needed because God desires for all people to be in the family of God, both Jew and Gentile alike. And God began his work, as we saw in the book of Acts, by starting the process of salvation amongst the Jews. And God began to work in the midst of the early church and save the Jewish people. And the early church, in its earliest form, was predominantly Jewish people who came to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But yet, likewise, God has always intended to bring salvation through Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations as well. And now the time for that had come among the early church in a specific sense. God now wanted to swing wide open the door of salvation to the Gentile nations. And that's what we saw beginning to happen in chapter 10 as there was this equality demonstrated that God would save both Jew and Gentile alike and that there would be no partiality in the way he would do that, that he would embrace them all by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ alone and that God intends both Jew and Gentile, both rich and poor, both young and old to all be one in Christ and the time had come in God's plan to do that very thing. Now, the way that happened, we saw in chapter 10, was a Roman centurion who was a Gentile who was seeking for clarity from God. He was someone who was searching. He had a reverence for God. He wanted truth, and he was seeking how to be right with God to a fuller degree. He sensed something was still lacking. And remember, God spoke to him. God gave him a vision and told him to send for this Jewish man, the apostle Peter, who would come to his house and would explain to him words how he might continually grow and he would ultimately come to a place where he could come into full right relationship with God, which of course was salvation through Jesus Christ. So he sends for Peter. At the same time, Peter miles away receives his own vision from God. 
And God, through that vision, enlightens Peter of what he intends to do, the change that he was bringing, and how Peter needed to realize that God loved and valued all men equally, that he didn't give preference just to his chosen people, the Jews, but that he loved all of humanity and wanted to save all of humanity, and shows Peter that though he was Jewish, he should no longer discriminate between Jew and Gentile or hold any prejudice in his heart as they had customarily come to do. And so he begins to work in Peter's life and he speaks to Peter and, and tells Peter, look, I want you to welcome these messengers who are en route to you. I sent them and I want you to go with them and I want you to speak words of salvation to Cornelius and to his household and explain to them how they might be saved as they're seeking to hear from God. And as Peter arrives, he begins to preach the word of God and share the gospel message with them. And as we saw at the closure of our study last time, before Peter can even finish his sermon, God reproduces, it's almost like a second Pentecost, very similar to what happened in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They begin to worship God. They begin to praise God, even in the miraculous gift of tongues. And God stamps with very clear authenticity that he wants the Gentiles to be saved and the Gentiles don't have to become Jews first in order to experience salvation through Jesus, that they could come through Jesus Christ directly and experience salvation. So with that, look back in chapter 10, verse 47 and 48, Peter, having seen this amazing work of God and how the Gentiles became saved and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them also, Peter said at the end of our chapter last week, can anyone forbid water that these, these Gentiles who were just saved should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and stayed with them a few days. Chapter 11, verse one then continues saying, now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So the mother church back in Jerusalem, there it tells us now hear news about the Gentiles getting saved also. It says that they get word that the word of God has now been received among the Gentile people also amidst Peter's ministry travels. Remember, the Apostle Peter, we've been watching, is kind of like out on a ministry tour, if you would. He's going around to the different regions around Israel. We saw him going to Joppa and to Lydda and to other locations where there were churches that had been established. And he's going around and encouraging the believers and ministering as a spiritual leader sent out from the Jerusalem church. And while away on this missionary trip or this ministry trip visiting the churches, that's when God uses Peter, as we saw, to bring the gospel message to the Gentile people. And upon hearing the truth, they believe and gladly receive the word of God. And salvation now comes from Jesus Christ. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, just as the Jews had been. And this amazing experience and change travels back, the news does, back to the church down south in Jerusalem where Peter is away from. It says there, verse 1, that the apostles, that's a reference to the church leaders, the established leaders, the brethren, that's just a reference generically to the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ. It says they heard, that as they got report, news traveled, they got report somehow, word got back to them that the Gentiles 
also, the idea is apart from becoming Jewish, that the Gentiles also, apart from becoming Jewish, they had also received the word of God. And that statement, they've received the word of God, is another reference to just infer salvation. Now, to me, that's interesting. Take notice that here, and we see many different descriptions throughout the word of God of, of phrases that describe the salvation experience through Jesus Christ. Here, salvation is referred to by the Holy Spirit as those who received the word of God. That's how the Holy Spirit refers to the salvation experience of the Gentiles. They were those who received the word of God. And see, that's important because it's through the word of God that we hear the truth about our spiritual condition. It's through the word of God that we hear the truth about what Jesus Christ did for us in regards to our spiritual condition. It's through the word of God that we hear what God requires of us to do in response to our spiritual condition and what Jesus Christ did for us. It's the word of God that tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's no difference that every human being, whether moral or completely just debased and, and involved in every form of immorality, that every human being equally before almighty, holy God fails. We all miss the standard. We're all guilty in something we've said, thought, and done many times over throughout our life, and we all have a sin issue that makes us guilty before God. It's the word of God that tells us, but God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that Jesus came and lived a sinless life as the son of God, but yet fully man at the same time and lived the sinless life that we cannot live and then ultimately died in our place sacrificially and took the punishment for our sins, that Christ was crucified for our sins and rose from the dead the third day and that Jesus himself therefore declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one now can come to the Father except through me. And that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and that we need to receive Jesus Christ. We need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And it's the word of God that brings us into that understanding. Listen, we cannot truly lead a person to Christ. Someone cannot experience salvation unless they hear the word of God. It's the receiving of the truth of what God says is true about my condition, about what Jesus did for my condition about what is necessary for me to do now in response that I, once I'm instructed by what God says in his word, that we each must then decide what we're going to do with the truth that God's just told to us through his word. And so I now have a decision. Will I receive what God has said or will I refuse what God has said? And I have to make that determination. I have to choose. Every person has to decide. If you refuse to believe and receive what Jesus has done for you and what God says is true, then you choose to embrace the consequences eternally that God said would come anyone who refuses Jesus Christ. If you choose to receive what God says is true in his word, then you experience salvation. But it is necessary to both believe and receive receive the word of God, to receive what God is saying to your heart through his word. Let me just say something very important, whether you're a Christian or not even saved yet this morning, there is a difference between hearing the word of God and believing and receiving the word of God. Don't ever think that just because you heard the truth, you believe it. 
Don't ever think just because you heard what is true and you even nodded your head to it and assented to it mentally that you've received it. There is a difference. We see all throughout the scriptures, we see in the days of Jesus, you, know, you can hear the truth, but it's what do you do with the truth? You have to respond to it. You have to receive it. The Bible tells us in John's gospel, to as many as receive Jesus, he gives the right to experience eternal life and be a child of God. At some point, we must choose what we're going to do with the truth that we hear. So the Gentiles, they both believed and received the word of God as Peter was speaking to them about Jesus Christ. And that's why they experienced salvation because they received what Peter was telling them about Jesus's life and his death on the cross and resurrection and that he could give them forgiveness of sins. And God showed no partiality and saved them powerfully. And can you imagine, as verse one describes, the news of this reality traveling back now to the church in Jerusalem. It says they heard that the Gentiles also, just like the Jews had, received the word of God. So imagine word traveling back and Typical conversation and how word travels. Did you hear? And different people sharing their version of the story. Did you hear what happened at this man Cornelius's house? And, and I heard that this happened. And I heard that Peter did this. And then I heard that this happened. And all this news is gradually traveling back of this work of God before, listen, before Peter gets back and can actually explain it firsthand. So the news just gets back. Verse two says, and when Peter then came up to Jerusalem, so the news gets there before him, Peter now arrives. It says, and when he gets there, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And there should be a exclamation point in your Bible there. Take notice, upon arriving back at the church, Peter is confronted and challenged very strongly for what things they heard that Peter had done. Notice, first of all, in our text here, who it was that approached Peter and were clearly bothered. It tells us there in verse 2 that it was those of the circumcision. Now, that refers to Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were saved. They had accepted Jesus' salvation. They were following Jesus as his disciples. Yet, they were those, having coming from a Jewish heritage, that still, though saved, held very tightly at this point still to the law, to the covenant of circumcision, to the value of Jewish customs and observing Jewish ways as still very important. And knowing they were God's chosen people, the Jews, as I said, some of them then wrongly interpreted in the midst of that, that it was actually necessary for a person to become a Jew first before you could then become saved. So they may not have necessarily thought Gentiles couldn't be saved, but in their mind, you have to understand, they were thinking, you have to first become a Jew. We are God's chosen people. You have to come under the law and circumcision and come under the covenants because we're God's covenant chosen people. And so it was hard for them to imagine that you could not possibly become saved unless you first became a Jew. And they, as I said, because of this bigotry and animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles socially, they did not intermingle or associate with one another. They didn't enter one another's houses. They didn't share meals together because a Jew believed that if he ate with or spent time with a Gentile, that he was defiled 
morally or spiritually. These pagan Gentile people who worship these other gods other than our God, Yahweh God that we know, they'll defile us. So they didn't interact with each other. Notice it says those of the circumcision uses the word there, verse two, they contended with Peter. And that word is a very strong word in the Greek language. One translation, I think it's the New American Standard, renders that they took issue with Peter. Well, that's descriptive. They took issue with him over what he did. The language speaks of challenging with criticism because of wrongdoing. The idea there is they have in their minds judged Peter as having committed some error when he was out there doing whatever he did. And they believe that what he has done is wrong. He's committed some error. And so they're disputing with him and challenging and contending with him over his actions. And what was it they were disputing or contending over? Verse 3, they were saying to him, you went in to an uncircumcised men, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, and you had a meal with them. You, we heard you ate a meal with them. They were shocked and highly offended that Peter would do such Here's what's interesting. Instead of wanting to understand, tell us how this whole experience of salvation happened. Tell us about this incredible work of God that we heard about. Instead, what are they focused on? We can't believe, and they're frustrated, you violated our customs. How dare you not observe our traditions? And rather than be happy that God worked in somebody's life, instead they are more frustrated and angry that their personal convictions were violated, that their customs weren't observed. And so they're very upset about this. You entered into the house of Gentile people and ate with them. Again, to us we may look and think, what's the big deal? But we have to, again, remember in that culture, especially in that ancient culture in that day, to eat a meal with a person was considered as becoming one with that person. They viewed sharing a meal together, and part of it was the way that they ate. You know, they didn't eat like us as Americans with plates and utensils and, and everything. So they, they, there was a piece of meat in the center of the table, or there was some bread in the center of a table, and there were different dips and sops around, and you would just reach in and pull something off, and you'd dip in, and you'd eat, and you'd even probably sometimes double dip back in and eat again. And so... There was a very intimate thing. The idea was your molecules and my molecules, like it's all getting mixed up and part of you is becoming me and part of me is becoming you. And so in their mind, there was this mystical unison that happened when people shared a meal together. They saw it as a very intimate experience. And so this was why you see the very strong reactions in the gospels when Jesus would eat with people who were sinful and there would be such a strong reaction by the religious leaders. You're becoming one with those people. What are you doing? And this is why here you have to understand the Jews were so you know, upset about the fact that he had shared a meal with a Gentile because he, they felt like you defiled yourself. You went into Gentile people and, and they're so consumed with this. They don't understand why Peter would violate this strongly held custom. They disagree with his actions. They feel that what he has done is wrong and that he actually needs to be rebuked for it. And what's the whole cause? Consider this. Having simply heard some of what happened, but not having all the details of the full story, they don't fully understand what transpired, they become critical. And they become angry and upset, and they question that what he did must be improper, and they feel they need to dispute with him. Now, let's be very honest by way of application. Oftentimes, that same process happens among us today as well. 
Many a times this process unfolds. We hear part of a story of what happened. We hear some of what transpired, but quite frankly, we don't have all the details. We don't have all the information. People just have basic information and because of a lack of full explanation and not having all the facts with limited understanding of the basic story, what do we do? We draw conclusions and we speculate with what must have happened. And and all of a sudden, we then find ourselves becoming critical or upset about what we heard happened or what we perceive took place or what we think unfolded from the limited story that we have and we get angry and critical we see something is wrong and maybe even maybe even go and dispute with somebody over it i can't believe that you fill in the blank because you might have just done it this week right (laughs) i can't believe that and we have a limited understanding we don't have the full story and we can make the same mistake that they were making here Also note as well that even as it happened among the disciples with Jesus as they walked around, we see it in the Gospels. Again, what is this? This is the days of the early church. And notice among the early church, there were misunderstandings. There were disputes. There were people at times that got upset because they didn't have the full story and they thought, I can't believe that leader would do that. I can't believe he would make that kind of decision. Well, they have no idea what went into the process of what led Peter to the conclusion to do what Peter did, but they're questioning what he did. And sometimes, again, among the church family, we can be prone to do the same thing. We have misunderstandings and we dispute over things, and this is just part of family life. Look, I love my family, but I probably argue with my family more than I do most of you. That's part of family life, right? And the church is a family So churches have misunderstandings and things transpire and we don't have all the facts and sometimes we draw wrong conclusions and so forth. And notice as well that the things they were upset about, if you really consider it, the things they were upset over, it was not a doctrinal issue of Scripture. It was not a doctrinal issue of Scripture. It was a cultural thing. It was a personal conviction that people held about you shouldn't eat with Gentiles. It was a custom that they held to. The source of the contention and dispute was not a scriptural issue. And I think that this is important as well because sometimes we become critical and the source of our contentions, you have to be careful, they're not even scriptural. It's not even over a doctrinal issue. Look, should we stand up for doctrine? Absolutely. I'm going to contend if it's over doctrine. The Bible says we should contend earnestly for the faith, but the Bible doesn't say we should contend because your perspective or conviction about something is different than someone else's because there's liberality in Christ and there's freedom and we're allowed to have different convictions. And just because my conviction is violated isn't a reason necessarily to contend or dispute with somebody as regard to that. Sometimes when the Lord is at work, I found in my life that God may at times work outside of the box of our little ideas. And I tell you something, grace always focuses on bigger, weightier issues. That's that's when the grace of God is at work, God's focusing on the big issues, the weightier issues. It's the law and legalistic critical humanity that wants to focus on all the minutia and count little seeds. And God says, I'm I'm focusing on the big issues here. I'm doing something of grace. 
And so we have to be very careful here. They get so upset with Peter. They're judging and, I mean, they're actually disputing with him over this. Well, look at verse 4. Peter, it says, explain to them in order from the beginning. So Peter recognizes, okay, they obviously lack full understanding of what happened. They're very upset with me over what takes place. And he realized they need some explanation. He realizes very maturely that much of their concern and even their criticisms being launched towards him might change if he took some time to explain to them what actually happened. If he was able to convey to them what was really the truth and what did and didn't happen, okay, maybe that will help them see things. And rather than get defensive, Peter just takes the time to give some clarity and give some explanations so that they can see. And sometimes, look, like Peter, we need to do the same. Rather than just get defensive, sometimes maybe we need to realize, you know, there's a little bit of a lack of understanding here. Maybe instead of get defensive, how dare you challenge me? Maybe instead what we need to do is, okay, they, maybe they need a little explanation here. Maybe they need a little more fuller picture of what actually did or didn't happen. And humility, give that clarity. Oftentimes, that much-needed clarity will bring resolution, like it does in our text here. It helps people to accept things sometimes they might be struggling with. Now, Peter is going to, in verse 5 to 16, he's going to explain the events that happened in chapter 10. And here's what's interesting. This is the third time now the Holy Spirit is stating and recording and repeating the exact same story. The third time in a row now we read the exact same story. God chooses to repeat the same events three different times for us in chapters 10 and 11. Certainly we learn best by repetition. Perhaps God's telling us that. And sometimes we need things reinforced. But the repeating of this story is also to show its importance that God wants us to see and not miss that it was God who brought salvation to the Gentiles. It was his doing. It was his decision. It may have seemed like a radical change, but God said, I brought the change. It was me that did this, that we might accept the turn of events as being from the Lord. Because when you know the Lord is the one who brings change, it makes much easier to kind of accept the change I found because then you can kind of trust that, that the all-knowing God knows what he's doing. Now, since we've already looked at this and given exposition in chapter 10, we're not going to be real exhaustive in the commentary, but it's here before us. So let's read through again as Peter recounts the story of what really did happen. He says, verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and as Peter was praying, God gave him a vision. And remember, that vision was the object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven, and when Peter looked at it, remember, there were four-footed animals, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. That is, when this sheet came down from heaven, remember it says Peter was around noontime praying. He was hungry, and so God thought, okay, he's hungry. I'm going to give him a food vision. He'll pay attention that way. And so God gave him a vision, showed him things as he was praying, and he saw this sheet with all these different animals. Some were clean, according to Leviticus 11, kosher, clean, acceptable animals to eat, according to Jewish diet. Others were unclean, unkosher animals that Jews would refrain from and they would not eat because they were considered unacceptable. And as Peter saw this, he then heard the voice of Jesus and he knew it was the Lord because he responds to him as Lord afterwards. He heard Jesus showing him all these clean and unclean animals all together saying, Peter, go ahead and eat whatever you want. 
Everything's acceptable, Peter. You can partake of whatever you want. Peter, remember, said, not so, Lord. I've never put into my mouth anything common or unclean. I, I, I've always honored a kosher Jewish diet. I would not do that. There's clear distinctions that must be drawn. I'm not going to do that. Again, we said, remember, it's never good to say those two things together. It's a contradiction. Not so and Lord. You can say not so Bob. You can say not so Sally. But you can't say not so Lord. If he's Lord, he's Lord. Whatever he says goes, right? But Peter here, like we all do sometimes when we're struggling with things that are difficult for ourselves, we not, not so, Lord. I just, but Jesus here doesn't take no for an answer. He says to him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And Peter said this was done three times and then everything was drawn back up into heaven again. So again, this vision was a picture, as we talked about, of both Jew and Gentile all being there together and all being equally acceptable before God. That there was to be no distinction. What God had made equally acceptable, Peter was not to show partiality. And after contemplating the vision and what it meant, Peter himself said that he came to understand that God was showing him in this vision that all men were equally acceptable in the opportunity and no man was, was off limits for God's work. That he was not to draw distinctions among people. That God shows no partiality and that Jesus wanted to be Lord of all people. And that anybody could come to him in the same manner by grace and through faith. So verse 11, Peter says, At that very moment, then three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit, he says, then told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, he said, these six brethren, seeming who were there with Peter, that were a part of it, they accompanied me. Peter's saying, they were with me, they're witnesses. And we entered the man's house. So notice, Peter says, as I was praying, the Lord showed me a vision and what he was doing. And after he showed me what he was going to do, he says, then these men showed up at the house and they actually were circumstantial confirmation of what God had just spoken to me. And he says, I was praying, God spoke to me, and then after God spoke to me, God brought circumstances that lined up with exactly what he had just spoken to me. And let me just say, a lot of times when God's work and God's plan is unfolding, that's kind of how the process happens. Or let me encourage, sometimes that's how it should happen. We should be praying and seeking the Lord. And as we're praying and seeking the Lord, God speaks things to us, God shows things to us. And then to confirm that, God shows it again by making circumstances come into alignment with what he's speaking to us. I would caution you from just interpreting circumstances as the leading of God. I would caution you from just interpreting, I think God spoke to me about something if you don't have circumstances that line up with that. I would encourage you that many times in the word of God, many a times the authentic way of God's leading is God speaks and then God shows through circumstances and those things become a confirming evidence. This is the Lord. This is of the Lord. So look for those things to ultimately come together collectively. So Peter says, when this happened, the spirit told me, he says, to go with them doubting nothing. But look what he says, verse 12, he reminds them of. He says, moreover, yet these six brethren, they accompanied me when we entered this man's house. In other words, do you see what Peter's saying? Peter's saying, look, the Lord spoke to me. He told me not to doubt and that this was him. 
And yet, take notice, even though Peter was strongly convinced that the Lord was leading him, he still included others in his activity. He still brought along six men for accountability. Peter said, these six brethren accompany me. Now, that's really wise to safeguard against further confusion or more misunderstanding. Peter here, I think, shows great wisdom, and it's a good pattern for us to embrace in our lives as well when the Lord is leading us to do things. That even when you're very confident or I'm very certain this is the Lord and the Lord's leading, guess what? Still establish accountability. Still establish other people to be involved to some degree in what you're doing. Include others in the process, even when God is the one leading in your life. Because there's great value. Make sure others are aware of what you're doing. Make sure other people are included to some degree in the process of what's going on, especially, that's very helpful, in sensitive situations. If a situation sensitive like this is, all the more have accountability and other people aware and involved. If there's some change that's happening, have other people aware and involved. If it's something that could seem potentially questionable or people could want to speculate about, have other people involved. Be proactive. Be someone that wisely includes others with what you're doing. It's a very good safeguard. Peter said, look, I wasn't alone. I didn't do this solo. He says, these other brothers, they were with me. They were a part of this process. He says, verse 13, and we He said he told us, Cornelius that is, how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. So Peter here clarifies that he was sent by divine request. He says, Cornelius told me. It wasn't his idea. God told him, go get the apostle Peter. And he will come and tell you, and notice Peter clarifies, he will come and tell you, verse 14, words by which you and your household will be saved. This was God's divine orchestration that he was to go to the Gentiles and tell them how to experience salvation, how they could be saved. Remember, Cornelius, the Bible told us, was a good man. He was moral. He was religious. It says he prayed and he feared God with all of his household, yet something was still missing in his relationship with God. And he realized that. He realized, I'm a very religious person. I'm a very moral person, but yet there's still something missing. What was missing? God needed to tell Cornelius, yes, you're a good man. You try and do good things. You're moral. You have a fear of God, but yet Cornelius you still need to be saved from your sinful condition. Because even people who are religious and try and do good or more good than others or go to church services or pray prayers, look, at the end of the day, there's still this root issue and that's why Jesus came. We all sin and we need to be saved from our sin. And we need to understand that we need to be saved from our sin and that only Jesus and what he did could save us. That's why I remember Peter said to Cornelius when he was at the house, whoever believes in Jesus, he said, will receive remission, removal of their sins. And that's what we all need to fully come to understand as human beings. That being religious isn't enough, being good isn't enough, being moral isn't enough. What is necessary is we must have our sin removed from our life 
by Jesus to be acceptable to enter into the presence of God. And we must come to that place in our life where we grasp that for ourselves and receive that by asking Jesus to do it for us. So Peter says, as I then began to speak about how a person could be saved, the Holy Spirit, verse 15, fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So again, we saw, remember, as Peter was just preaching his sermon to them, sharing the gospel, it's almost as if when he got to a certain point, God just interrupted Peter's sermon and God said, Peter, thanks for your help. I can finish from here. And the Holy Spirit of God just fell upon that Gentile family that was gathered together and they believed upon Jesus and what Peter was telling them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in the same way that God did upon the Jews at the early church in Acts chapter 2. And they began to worship God and speak in tongues, the Bible says, and God powerfully repeated the whole Pentecost experience to kind of stamp that day historically that he was going to save Gentiles just like he was going to save Jews. And so God repeated this experience. God powerfully saved them, Peter said, just as he did us. He gave them the same outpouring of the gift of the Spirit. God was showing his divine approval. And Peter says, verse 16, then I remembered, that is when I saw this experience, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So notice, Peter recalls when this event happened there with the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, he recalls the promise and the prediction that Jesus himself made while still on earth together with his disciples that Jesus promised that he planned to baptize with the Holy Spirit to give people supernatural power, even as John baptized people with water. Now, we've talked about before. When someone is saved by Jesus, has a conversion experience, chooses to follow him as Lord, biblically, they should be water baptized. We're commanded to observe water baptism. And when we baptize people in the summer, when we do a baptism, what we're basically doing is we're immersing them into the water. We put them down into the water. They disappear. We bring them back up out of the water. It's a picture, a type, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection coming back from the dead. And it is their way of identifying outwardly with the lordship of Jesus Christ and the salvation of Jesus, that they are one with Jesus. And when they come into that spot and they go into the water, when they come back up, their condition is completely changed, physically at least. They're all soaking wet now, their hair's messed up, their makeup's running. It affects their condition. Well, in the same way, the Bible says also in the same manner, when somebody is saved and then indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which happens at salvation, there is also available a baptism with the Spirit, where Jesus himself, who is the baptizer, can baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit by immersing us or plunging us, if you would, into the Spirit so that we may experience the power of the supernatural in our life, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us to give us power from on high, to endue us with power from heaven that we might be an effective servant of Christ that we could live for Jesus and serve for Jesus with great influence, that we can experience the fullness of the degrees of the spiritual life and the spiritual gifts of God and operate in a way where we are empowered by Jesus because the Spirit has come upon our life in great power. 
And Jesus here said that he would do that. And as Peter witnessed this spiritual experience happening with the Gentiles, as they were both saved and at the same time, it seems in that experience, saved and then baptized right afterwards immediately with the Holy Spirit, Peter, as he sees that experience, notice what he does. He says, I remembered the word of the Lord. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying he was able to validate the spiritual experience with the word of the Lord. He was able to validate a spiritual experience with the word of God. And look, we should always be able to do the same. We should always be able to verify spiritual experience with explanation from the word of God. That's very helpful that we would be open to experiencing everything that the Holy Spirit describes in the word of God from the spirit of God. And if it's in the word of God, I want to be open to experiencing it. By the same token, we would only embrace as valid spiritual experience that which is clearly defined in Scripture. Because we know if the Scripture says it, it's the same Spirit that wrote the Scripture that brings about spiritual experiences. And so we should always be able to explain experience by having validation from the Word of the Lord in our lives. So Peter says in conclusion, verse 17 and 18, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, he said, that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to Gentiles repentance to life. So Peter says it was evident God gave the Gentiles the same gift that he gave to us. Salvation through Jesus, the outpouring of his spirit. This whole thing, Peter saying it was totally a work of God. It was all his decision. It was his doing. So Peter, in light of that, says, verse 17, who was I that I could withstand God? The word withstand there means to oppose or resist or prevent or stop. Peter says, I had no right to stop or try and hinder what God was doing. If it was God doing it, Peter said, I don't want to stand in God's way. If it was the Lord that was bringing it to pass, I didn't want to think I had a right to stand in opposition or prevent God's work. Peter knew it's always wise to humbly submit ourselves to what God desires and what God is doing and not to try and resist it, to stand against it, to fight against it or hold back God's words. Yet sometimes, let's be honest, we all can be guilty of doing that. Sometimes we can all make the mistake if we don't see what God's doing maybe or perhaps God's work is unfolding in a particular way or maybe the Lord's beginning to do something and it's outside of our box or our comfort zone or maybe we don't understand it or maybe we just don't like it. And sometimes when that happens, it may contradict our view on a matter and we're tempted then to try and oppose what God's doing. We actually try and withstand and hold back what God may be trying to accomplish and we become guilty of trying to prevent God's work. Look, this morning, is it possible that in your life that in some way you are trying to prevent something that God is doing? And you're actually maybe trying to withstand what the Lord is trying to accomplish, what the Lord's deemed to unfold. We want to be careful of that in our lives. And if we recognize it, submit ourselves 
to the Lord and just allow God to be free to have his way and trust that he knows what's best. That's what these people do here in verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, look, they become silent. That is, they say, the will of the Lord be done. Okay, Lord. Nothing else be said. They, and notice, they even glorified God. God, you know what's best. I guess you've granted repentance to the Gentiles for life in Christ, even as you have us in our lives. They fully accepted the turn of events as being from God. And sometimes in our lives, we have to be willing to do the same. As I said at the beginning, change is not always easy, but sometimes change is necessary. And if God is trying to bring something about or orchestrate change or bring a new season, whatever it may be, the best thing that we can do is in humility and in faith, trust that God knows what's best and just say, Lord, the last thing I want to do is get in your way. Lord, I don't want to withstand what you're doing. Lord, I want to just say your will be done and glorify you. You know what's best, Lord. And let God be in control of what's going on. Let's stand, let's pray together.